to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 4? We're starting in verse 16 through the end of the chapter, through verse 25. And your Pew Bible, it's on page uh, 941. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written... I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. The word of the Lord. Let's ask the Lord to enable us to deal rightly with his word. Lord, we pray that you would give wisdom in the proclamation of this word and grace. Lord, as always, as you tell us, apart from you, we can do no good thing. We can't can't proclaim your truth. We can't hear your truth. We, We can't live it out. Lord, we depend upon you, you who raise the dead, you who create life out of nothing all things out of nothing. We rely on the omnipotent, powerful, faithful God himself. Bless us, O Lord. We praise you and would honor you with our faith this day. Amen. This uh, chapter 4 that we've been in in Romans has tried to in, in this Paul is trying to tell us what faith is by showing us what faith was for Abraham. Now this is really important for every person here because 
Uh, Abraham is not just an example of faith. He was, in a sense, the first person of faith. In a, in a sense, he was the beginning of the people of faith. And so his life becomes this huge paradigm. It's, in fact, he, he lays him out and says, whatever kind of faith Abraham had, it was a faith by which he was justified. It was a faith by which he was brought into a right relationship with God. Now, that is important for every one of us. We want to have that same faith so that we too can be brought into that righteous relationship with God. And so Paul is making the point that it is by faith that he by faith that he enters into this relationship, he says first it's faith without works, verses 1 through 8. Then 9 through 12, it's faith apart from circumcision. And then next, faith apart from the law. So faith apart from works, faith apart from circumcision, faith apart from the law. So whereas the, the Jews wanted to paint the circle around themselves and even interpreted his being the father of all nations, being that all nations would produce proselytes, or that by the rule of the Jews, they would be forced to be circumcised, as they had done with the Endominians uh, the couple of centuries beforehand. So even in their interpretation of Abraham being father of the nations, it was father of the nations as they have become Jews. But here, Paul goes back and says, hey, let's look at our father, Abraham. It was apart from any works that he was justified. It was apart from being circumcised that he was justified. It was apart from the whole law that he was, being, uh, that he was justified. How can you paint a circle around the law and say it's only those within the law that will be justified? Only those within the law that will be the people of God. Why, the first person of God became that just by faith apart from those things. So that's the argument here in chapter 4. And that's encouraging to every one of us. Because just simply by helpless faith, we enter into the relationship with this God. And so the heart of the Old Testament relationship with God is set forth with Abraham, with no resources, helplessly trusting in God's gracious promise. He came into a relationship. And so we who come helplessly without resources, trusting in God's gracious promise, whether Jew or Gentile, we follow in the footsteps of Abraham and we are his children. And so basically he's redrawn the boundaries of the people of God. And in fact, he not only includes the Gentiles, but he makes the way of the Gentile the norm because he goes back and says, Abraham was a Gentile. Abraham was a pagan. And he came into a relationship with God by faith. That was the standard for everyone, either inside or outside Israel, to come to God by faith. In a way, it almost seems to, the question is, will, will Israel be included? And he gets to that in chapters 9 through 11. So Abraham is the prototype of what it means to have faith in God. And he had a specific, Schreiner calls it a faith that had a specific profile that's reproduced in the life of his children. And that's why this section we're dealing with is so important. 
Having said that it's apart from works and apart from circumcision and apart from law, now we're going to look at the nature of that faith. What does that faith look like so that we can say, yes, we've entered into that faith and we are now children of Abraham having that same faith? Well, we'll see that this faith is helpless. This faith rests in the promise of God, or you could put it in the God who promises. They're, they're one and the same thing in this passage. He believed God or he believed his promise. Promise is, is prominent. Over and over he mentions what God said, what God promised. But he says he believed him. He believed God. So however you want to put that, believing in the promise of the God who promises. And then finally, faith glorifies God. Faith glorifies God. So faith is helpless. Faith relies on promise. Faith glorifies God. Faith is helpless. What's interesting is, as you look in verse 17, at the end he calls this God, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, I want you to couple that with the other grand central statement of God. These are general statements of who God is earlier in the chapter in verse 5. It says, He is the one who justifies the ungodly. Who justifies the ungodly. And many commentators have pointed out that this is setting forth the full radical nature of his teaching on justification. The radical nature of his teaching on justification because the same helplessness, the same lack of resources indicated in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist is also true of justifying the ungodly. We have nothing, a dead person has nothing to offer God. Nothing. Something that doesn't exist has no existence whatsoever. It cannot be a reason why God brings it into existence. It is purely God's action. And so it is teaching us that we bring nothing to God. We are as dead. We are as those who do not exist. We have nothing. And he is the one who calls us into newness of life. You see, the same faith of Abraham, believing the God who justifies the ungodly, is the faith that believes in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that don't exist. That is so important to us. It's so satisfying and comforting to us Because he reckons us righteous in the same way in which he makes alive. So that his saving work depends on nothing in us who are saved. One commentator says, The dead cannot make terms. That which does not exist cannot place God under any obligation. And so, we in a similar way come to him 
realizing that we have no resources, even as Abraham had no resources. And that's important for us. It's a part of understanding that we come to him ungodly, but we come to him as those who have no life. We come to him as those that must be completely renewed and raised from the dead by God's grace. And so, here is Abraham, not trusting in his own power, not trusting in his own body, contemplating, it says, in verse 19. He considered his own body as good as dead. He considered the bareness of Sarah's womb. He had, was in full realization of the deadness on both sides of the equation. And perhaps there's a reflection here, even in Genesis 17, 17, when he actually laughed. So that you see that in, in his weakness and in his faith and his helplessness, he even laughed at the preposterous nature of this situation. When God says, you are going to bear, and he says, can a man a hundred years old, can a, a woman 90 years old? Which is encouraging to us because basically, fundamentally, it says he did not grow weak in his faith, but he grew strong in his faith. But that still doesn't mean that at times he thought the whole idea was absolutely crazy. And sometimes we struggle in that sense. Sometimes we, and we come full to grips with, wait a minute, this is impossible. Or you're looking at some aspect of your own life and you think, I've tried to change this too many times. I know it's not going to change. That's a good place to be. It's very much like Abraham. And it's very much then that you have to believe in a God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Paul is using Jewish terms here. Regular, one of these is used in the 18 benedictions still used today in Jewish circles. So he was bringing the Jewish uh, theology to bear here, but applying it now in a whole new way as he then talks about believing in the God who raised Christ from the dead. But we see here that the origin of faith has nothing to do with your ability, has nothing to do with how much you've succeeded or failed. It has nothing to do with how unlikely it is to happen. It only rests as you contemplate the power of God. Leon Morris says, Abraham had nothing going for him except the promise of God. And brother, sister, you have nothing going for you in one sense, spiritually. You have nothing going for you except the promise of God. But that is a promise of an almighty God. It is the promise of a faithful God. We don't close our eyes to the reality, the limitations of what we are or are not. But we look to the promise, we look to God's power, we look to His faithfulness. That's all that we have. There is no room, when you trust God, there is no room for self-reliance. But it is so difficult to have this kind of faith. 
It is so difficult when we really face impossible situations. And particularly, I think, we face spiritually impossible situations. That's where hopefully the large warfare is in our hearts of wanting to be holy, of wanting to be a good husband, a good father, a good mother, a good wife, a good child. And it's at that point where we all too often are not praying or even thinking about, even thinking of our need of the God who brings life to the dead and calls into existence the things that are not. When's the last time you prayed that and, say, prefaced your prayer with that kind of declaration? It's interesting when uh, Israel was faced with insurmountable odds, how they began by first talking about the might of God. And this jumps ahead a little bit to giving God glory, but just listen to this when Jehoshaphat was surrounded. And notice how long it is before he gets to a request. Sometimes we think, oh, highfalutin prayers going on and on about God this, God that. Why don't you just ask him? I've heard that before. You know, just get to it and ask him. You don't have to do all this stuff before God. Well, tell Jehoshaphat that and the Holy Spirit who included this as well. So here's Jehoshaphat praying. Oh, Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction and you will hear and save. And now, behold, the men of Ammon and Moab. Now he gets to his problem. And there's not as much on the problem as there is about the glory and majesty and power of God. And that's, that's the faith of Abraham looking away, realizing his absolute helplessness. And do we realize that? Are we facing that? And, and when we do, are we simply despairing? Are we simply throwing up our hands? Well, I'm just going to always be this way. I've always been this way. I don't know that there's ever going to be any change in me. Rather than to lay hold of this God and believe Him. Believe His promise that He is at work in His almighty power to change you into the image of God. He is the mighty God who will make you holy. Well, our faith must look away from ourselves. It is a helpless faith. And certainly in terms of your own personal sinfulness and my personal sinfulness, we look at ourselves and think, how in the world could God forgive me? And yet, as we'll look, there is promise. 
There is promise from God that He will forgive us. And so we look to the promise. We don't look at what we are, what we don't have, what we've been. We don't look at our sinfulness. We simply look only to the promise. That's all that Abraham had. And that's the the meaning of faith. That's the faith that brings us into a righteous relationship with God. So faith then rests in the promise Faith rests in the God who promises. It's interesting that Abraham, given his his situation, particularly called to mind, and the commentator would say, this is, this is probably particularly what attributes of God that he had to lay hold of. It was in respect to that kind of attribute that he had to believe God because he had no way to have a child. So he had to believe in a God who could do something like that. And a God who had that kind of power. And so God promised. That's what he said. So shall your offspring be, as he showed him the stars in the sky. You will be the father of nations and He's looking at his own body and he's looking at his wife's body and saying, this is impossible. There's no way. But this God has said it. And he's all powerful and he's faithful. I love what Caseman says. Faith is an exodus from the sphere or the area, the, the, the territory of the calculable. That is what you can calculate. It's an exodus from what you can calculate and figure out how you're going to do it, how it could be done, into the horizons opened up by the Word. The horizons of a future under the saving will of God. And so what's the possible is not the boundary of hope. Hope goes beyond what is possible. Beyond what I'm able to do or beyond what I'm able to change. Beyond what I'm able to think about in terms of my own sinfulness. Humanly speaking, there is no hope. Right here it says, in hope he believed against hope. He's probably playing off the Greek idea of hope, which their idea of hope was really one of fear. Expectation of something not so good coming. But the Jewish idea was hope as the expectation of good. And so against every reason, against humanly speaking, any situation that there could be any hope and anything could happen on a human level, against all of those things, he hoped in the power of God. And so hope that... We oppose is hope of just what a human being might expect. We have a different hope, and it's connected to the promise of God. Only the promise. When everything around us and everything in our personal history says there's no way, the promise says, oh yes, absolutely. Your calculation is not on human power, but on God's power. And so, 
Interestingly, there's a kind of play on words because he says he grew in his strength, well, even as they were growing in their weakness and deadness. It's like, here's the possibility of their having children going down further and further, and here's his faith going this way, expecting more and more that it's going to happen. We're usually tailing our possibility, aren't we? (laughs) The further down it goes, the further I don't believe it. The less likely it is happen on a human level, the further my faith goes down. And it's interesting, this word waver is used in many uh, uh, contexts to make a distinction, uh, to, to judge or differentiate or to assess. And the idea is he didn't assess God's promise. He didn't judge that promise. He didn't weigh it to see if this is possible or not, if this is a good one. He believed it. He submitted to his authority. He didn't weigh the evidence in the balance of unbelief. And so Stott writes that the command of Jesus, have faith in God, sometimes has been paraphrased in this way. It's a rough paraphrase, but it's an accurate Rest on the faithfulness of God. Notice what it says in Hebrews 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. And that's what we must do is consider him faithful who's promised. Faithful that he will fulfill what he says he will do especially in our spiritual lives, especially in regard to forgiveness. The gospel itself comes forward and says, I have sacrificed my son. I have made a way of forgiveness and a way for you to be under my favor forever. Here's the promise. Come and receive it. And you're not to hang back and say, well, I've I've done so many wrong things. I've sinned so greatly or I'm in such a rut. I'm in such a habit of sin. There's no way I can change it. The promise comes to you. There is forgiveness and transformation. And now it's not just looking forward as Abraham was looking forward, but we look back to the accomplishment of that promise. Isn't that interesting? He's believing in the promise of a seed The seed has come finally in Christ, been fulfilled in Christ, and he has died. And Paul uses that argument in Romans 8 to say, if he didn't spare his own son but delivered him up for us, how will he not with him freely give us all things? He argues from the faithfulness of God's love to give his own son to say, put your life in his hands. Know what he will accomplish for you. Know that what he will do for you. So faith is helpless. Faith looks to promise. And I would urge you to, over and over as you come to the word, read it as promise. Read the commands as promise. In, the, in this sense, he has now put his word in our hearts, it says. Put his law in our hearts. He says in the new covenant that he will cause us to walk in his ways. He has given us a new nature in Christ, a new capacity to obey. So in one sense, all the commands of God 
are like descriptions of your destiny. They're descriptions of what God has promised that he will bring about in your life. How wonderful to read the whole word. Now it opens up as promise to us. And again, I think that's why Second Peter, Peter says, it's by the promises that you partake of the divine nature. That's how you get at God. He promises himself. He promises his grace. He promises transformation. He promises forgiveness. And he's the God that can overcome anything in our lives. Anything. Because he is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. I would urge you to pray concerning your particular sins, these prayers. To pray, bringing before your mind, your heart, this God who is able to do these things. That's exactly what Paul does in Ephesians When he says, and you've heard me quote the thing many, many times. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. He's trying to get us to think like that. He's able to do beyond anything you can imagine. And it is a power that's working within you. He says earlier in Ephesians 1, this Power, He says, I pray that you would understand the immeasurable greatness of the power that is toward us who are trusting him. It's the same power by which he raised Christ from the dead. I want your hearts to be enlightened so that you would understand and lay hold of that and believe it. That's promise. Read the Gospels, read the Epistles, see what God has done and accomplished for you. Believe his promise over and against your own Weakness. And faith finally gives glory to God. Faith is helpless. Faith rests in promise. Faith gives God the glory. Has that wonderful phrase, doesn't it? No distrust, verse 20, made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God. You see, belief attributes Greatness to God. Belief or faith attributes greatness to God. Belief adores God and worships God and acknowledges God. Faith by its very nature praises Him and rejoices in Him. The opening of that prayer by Jehoshaphat is a prayer of faith, but necessarily it is a prayer that exalts him because it believes that's who you are. And it rehearses his greatness because you believe it, you treasure it, you relish it. That's why the Lord's Prayer begins, Our Father who art in heaven. Jesus says, I want you to begin before you request anything. I want you to know that he's the God of omnipotence, who's raised above the powers of the earth, the Father who's in heaven and that He is your Father and He will do anything for you because you're His child. I want you to know His power and His faithfulness and willingness before you ever pray. Faith declares who He is and faith lives in the light of that. Faith, excuse me, 
faith brings honor to Him as a God of faithfulness and power and goodness and kindness. Faith honors Him and says, you are the covenant God. You are the promise-keeping God. You do what you say you will do. <clears throat> so, faith really is giving God the glory and saying, you are omnipotent. You are faithful. It's, it's ascribing to God what is due to Him. It's, it's saying that you will follow through with everything. You're the almighty, faithful God. And Calvin says, experience shows that one of the most difficult attainments is to ascribe to the power of God the honor of which it is worthy. And he says also this, and this is very important. We do not sufficiently exalt the power of God if we do not consider it greater than our weakness. Faith, therefore, ought not to look to our weakness, misery, and defects, but should fix its whole attention on the power of God alone and believe that the hand of God is always ready to accomplish what He has spoken. Doesn't that seem humble when you say, I'm just weak, I'm just weak. And you leave it at that. Kind of get comfortable and just we're just so weak. I think, as I will say later, I think that's why some of us love Romans 7 so much. The last part of Romans 7. that talks about a struggle. And we take comfort in that maybe we'll never make progress our whole life because we're just so weak. And Calvin says, that does not give honor to God to make your weakness stronger than God. Your weakness takes center stage. Your weakness controls the day. Our weakness is what we end up bowing down to. And so, wavering in unbelief, obviously, which he did not do, does not glorify God. It makes something else stronger and more dependable than God. It makes something else as more worthy of your confidence and trust than God. Something is trumping God. Something is superior in importance or power than God. Something is canceling out the promise of God. And really, it's a rival promise. What is the other promise that you're believing in? What is that thing that you believe more than the promise of God? And you're living on the basis of that thing more than the promise of God. It's a false promise. That has become your God. That has become your idol. And, of course, a lack of prayer does not glorify God. That's unbelief. What's the use in it? What will it do? What will it accomplish? He's not involved. He doesn't care. He won't do anything. Prayer says something about God. Proper prayer, of course. Faith proclaims something about God. Prayer is a confession of faith in its very action. It is saying, you are God who hears me. You are a God who loves me. You are a God who are more powerful than any force in this world. And you will accomplish things for me. Not because I deserve it, but because you are God and you promise. Anybody who trusts in you, you will save them. And it's interesting here that it goes all the way back to 
using the language in chapter 1, verse 21, when it says, Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. And so Abraham is the reverse of... In in fact, in, in Abraham, we have the reverse of humanity here. Whereas we did not glorify God or honor Him as God, here's the picture of what a human being should do. In Adam and Eve, we turned away from God and says, you're not, said, you're not worthy of our trust. And we turned away and depended on ourselves. But now, the supreme way to worship God is not to work for Him, but to trust that He will fulfill His promises. To trust in His goodness and greatness. And so... Here, Abraham has become the new man, you see, the new man who puts faith in God and glorifies God by putting himself in the hands of God. And we have to say this, that I believe it was the German, I didn't read this in the German, but um, it was quoted, the German commentator, Mikkel, said, uh, unbelief as it mentions, is mentioned here, it's not just a lack of faith. It is a refusal of God. It's a refusal. We could say it's a denial of God. It's, it's a refusing of God, a denial of God, a disowning of God, unbelief. So we can't take it lightly. We can't allow it to fester in our lives. We must nurture it by His Word. We must nurture it by His promises. I think I told you years ago, um, I went to a seminar at General Assembly, and there was a man who was 83 years old teaching that seminar. 83. He was a faithful evangelist, uh, faithful working in uh, prisons and other areas and he, had, he, he was teaching on discipleship, and he had a legal-sized page with all these little scribbles of the disciplines he kept in his life. And one of them was, cash in seven promises a day. That's the way he put it, cash in seven promises a day. But his idea was that every single day I'm going to recall and live out and bank upon at least seven promises of God. Now, who can say how many? Um, Piper talks about Isaiah 41.10. I will be your God. I will, I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. Do not fear. He said, I must have counted on that promise thousands of times during the first months that I was taking speech in which I threw up every day before I had to speak. He, he couldn't do it. He just couldn't. Of course, now he's been one of the most used ministers. But he was that scared of getting up before people. And he held on to that promise and held on and held on and held on. Do not fear. I'm with you. I will uphold you. Do not fear. I'm with you. I will uphold you. That needs to be us. That needs to be us. There are areas that we would be moving forward in if we were believing like that, you see. We were holding on to the promise of the God who raises from the dead, the God who brings out of nothing things into existence. May he do so in your life, in my life. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, bless us.
Open up our hearts to receive your word. Cause us to look away from ourselves. Cause us to see our utter weakness and deadness. If there are those here who've never trusted in Christ and the one who came and died for sinners, the one who bore our sins in his body on the cross and was raised from the dead so that we might live new life, may even now they trust in Jesus Christ. May even now they believe in this God of promise, this God who has now in a whole new way unfolded His glory and His commitment to our good by revealing His own Son to us. Oh Lord, may there be no one who holds back, no one who holds on to their own strength, and no one who will disbelieve Your glorious promises, but begin to live by those, to be upheld by those, to be strengthened and comforted and encouraged by these promises. May they govern our lives, O Lord. May they dictate how we think about things. O bless us, Lord, to be people of the promise that truly we worship a covenant God. We worship a God who promises, who promises himself to us and all that he is for our good. And he does so that he might glorify his name by doing good to his people. Oh, Lord, we praise you. We lift you up. And may we bring honor to your name by the way we believe in your promise. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. my fears away won't you chase my fears away